You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hey, do you ever hear the phrase living your yoga and feel a bit confused? I'm really not wild about the phrase because it sounds generic and pretty vague, but I find that talking about yoga is often challenging because we're using words to express concepts that are beyond words. So if you're not quite sure what people mean when they say living your yoga, or if you do understand the concept, but don't understand how to do it, I think you'll enjoy today's episode. I'm going to unpack what I personally mean when I say living your yoga. I'll share the two distinct aspects to a living yoga practice, plus three tips to make that practice more attainable and more useful. Okay, first a bit of history. Like many yoga teachers, I first fell in love with asana. I loved the way that it made me feel relaxed and peaceful. And if I am completely honest, I also loved the way it made me feel competent. I was introduced to some basic practices by my theater professors in college and loved it right away. Between the years of childhood play, which was very active, and starting college, I had not been very physically active. I was a kid who loved reading and doing art, and I did not think of myself as athletic in any way. I also had asthma as a child, which I think contributed to this perception of myself as not being athletic. And most types of exercise left me feeling really inept and defeated. But because I live in a relatively bendy body, I felt more successful at yoga asana than other types of movement that I tried. And because the asana was still challenging for me, it introduced me to the miracle of exercise-induced endorphins. This combination of feeling physically and mentally at ease, while at the same time feeling accomplished and capable, was pretty intoxicating. And I know that I'm not alone in having had this experience. I know my story mirrors many of the other stories I've heard from yoga teachers. So I was totally hooked on asana, and I didn't really study yoga philosophy until many years later in my teacher training. But I will say, I believe my life until then had prepared me to be very open to yoga philosophy. I was born in Japan and I grew up in Hawaii. Hawaii is a mecca for immigrants and a place where many cultures coexist, intermix, and influence each other. My extended family includes people who were raised in Puerto Rico and India, and my parents were avid travelers who spent the years between leaving their home countries in Europe and settling in Japan in South American Asia primarily. So I grew up on stories of their travels, and India was my mother's particular favorite. My dad ended up becoming a professor of Japanese history at the University of Northern Iowa, where I went to college and was first introduced to yoga. His best friend and his next-door neighbor was the professor of Indian history, 
whose class I ended up taking to fulfill the cultural component of my gen ed requirements. So this is to set the stage that many of the concepts I would learn in teacher training were already familiar to me. And my life until that point had been a bit of a smorgasbord of different cultures. I was super open to the teachings and to be, again, upfront, I was not particularly passionate about them in the beginning. In college, I had also started practicing karate at the same time as yoga. And I enjoyed both of these primarily physical disciplines that are both also influenced by philosophy. I had an appreciation for the way that philosophy informed these practices, but I was much more interested at the time in developing some skill and mastery over movement and a better relationship with my body. Also, there were some concepts from yoga philosophy that I felt pretty uncomfortable with when I was first introduced to them. And I remember struggling with certain concepts during teacher training. The teaching on Santosha is the one that springs to mind first, because my sense was that with so much injustice in the world, what was the point of practicing contentment? Wouldn't that lead to complacency and even slow down the potential progress in reducing injustice? That was my point of view at the time. I've definitely evolved that perspective since then and have had a lot of conversations on both ends of the spectrum. I later on ended up teaching teacher trainings and encountered students who experienced the same resistance as me. So that was a really interesting full circle to explore that concept and then that sense of resistance from both sides. But long before I was leading teacher trainings, in the beginning of my teaching journey, I appreciated the philosophy. I was glad it was there, and I felt like it was an important part of the physical practice, but I didn't teach it myself. My classes were about doing, not about thinking or examining. And honestly, that might be pretty appropriate for a brand new teacher. Trying to teach concepts that have not been lived or digested and integrated is not super skillful or helpful for your students. But right around the time that I started teaching, I began studying a style of yoga that was very focused on infusing philosophy into asana classes. So at this time, I was not teaching this way, but I was absorbing it as a student. And the longer I practiced this style of yoga, the more I became inspired to begin weaving philosophy into my own classes. I learned to begin my classes with a teaching and to connect that teaching to the physical practices to weave the theme throughout the rest of the class. And the repeated process of being a student of philosophy and then teaching yoga philosophy gave me a level of exposure that I don't think would be possible as a student. The multiple angles that you are engaging with the information when you're both learning it and then eventually teaching it is different from just being 
the receiver of the information. For seven years, I contemplated, studied, applied, and then shared yoga philosophy with my students. Each of these ways of engaging with yoga philosophy built on the others. For example, knowing I was going to teach the concepts gave me a sense of responsibility to really practice, to really engage with them in my life. And the more I engaged with them, the less I suffered. And as I observed this pattern persisting and growing, I became really interested in yoga philosophy. During the time that I was studying within a specific system, things made a lot more sense because I had teachers who parsed out information in a specific order. They emphasized certain things, and I was basically guided through my studies. But when that organization dissolved in a puddle of scandal, I was left questioning everything I had ever learned about yoga. This led me to really re-examine my understanding of the human body, of alignment, and of anatomy. And the opportunity here, the gift, was that I started to look at what I had been taught through a system, through other lenses, other perspectives. And this worked really well for anatomy and physiology and alignment. When I started to look at what I had learned in yoga from a Pilates perspective and a weightlifting perspective and a academic anatomy perspective, things really started to fall into place. There were certain things that I had learned in yoga specifically that none of these other perspectives agreed with. Or to be more accurate, most of the time what I learned is that what I believed based on my yoga experience was just a small piece, and it was a bit two-dimensional. It didn't really take the full complexity of life and the human body into account. And that oversimplification was problematic. Because yoga teachers, especially 10, 20, 30 years ago, had a habit of drawing really strong conclusions from incomplete information and believing, many of them believing very strongly in those conclusions. While at first this undoing of everything I thought I knew was very humbling, ultimately it became empowering. Because I put in the effort and I did my homework and I took college level anatomy classes and began to apply myself to the study of anatomy similarly to the way I had applied myself to the study of philosophy for the previous seven years. Really, for the next seven years, my focus was anatomy. And this doesn't mean that I let go of studying philosophy, but I did find that trying to do the same to yoga philosophy was a lot more problematic because 
you can't really look to disciplines outside of yoga to inform yoga philosophy because that really is its own thing. For my life, I could certainly look to other philosophies and incorporate whatever I wanted to. But it's important not to get confused and to introduce other systems and call it yoga philosophy. However, as I mentioned earlier, the different traditions claiming yoga philosophy are so varied that if you try to study them on your own, it's really easy to get confused and overwhelmed. And fresh from the experience of having the teachers and the lineage that I had really devoted years of my life to studying disintegrate, it didn't feel safe to me to immediately jump into a different tradition. On some level, I didn't trust my own judgment. I had originally found my way into that style of yoga called Anusara because I connected with the local teachers in town. And the way that it was set up was so hierarchical that it was really designed for those local teachers to almost be funnels towards the main teacher. And while there were definitely some red flags about the organization, I ended up feeling gullible and naive at the end and not trusting myself to make good decisions about who to trust as a teacher. Maybe I'm not paying as close of attention. It feels like this pattern has slowed down a bit, but at the time, this is, we're talking about 2012, it felt like there was a new yoga scandal coming to light pretty much every week. And some of these were abuses that had gone on for decades and decades just now coming to light, and other ones were more recent. But the overall effect was to make me feel that having a guru wasn't safe. And I didn't trust anyone who claimed themselves as a leader of yoga. The path that felt more authentic to me was to find as many humble teachers as I could and see what they agreed on. And I decided that I wanted to commit to a single main teacher one day when I just knew deep down that it was the right person. Because the truth is, I had not had that experience before. I had had this desire for belonging and a certain naivete, but I didn't have a deep certainty, this is the person that I need to take on as a teacher. And the truth is, I still have not had that experience. What I do have, though, is a network of teachers that I trust and respect that feels more like a peer-to-peer -peer relationship where we all have things to learn from each other. And for now, this is what feels right for me, to recognize and acknowledge the importance of experience, but also that each of us has something to learn from everyone else. One of the clearest examples of this is how much there is to learn from children, how much children can be our teachers. Without a lot of lived experience, without the conscious intention to teach, 
there's so much to learn from being in relationship with a child. So for the past decade, I've been embracing the untidiness of being a student outside of a lineage. Because after nearly 20 years of practice, I trust myself to recognize when I'm moving towards a state of yoga, when I'm in a place of growth, and when I'm stagnating or going off in the wrong direction. Yoga Sutra 1.7 points out three ways that we can learn or obtain knowledge, direct experience, inference, and authority. Each type of knowledge has its own limitations. Direct experience is the knowledge that comes from living, from observing, feeling, sensing. And it's subject to the limitations of mistaken interpretations and confirmation bias. Inference is conclusions you come to based on logical deduction and reasoning. And this is obviously subject to our blind spots and logical fallacies. Finally, authority is testimony from ancient texts, oral traditions, and living teachers. Any one of these three ways of knowing is useful, but the concepts where there's overlap, where you have lived experience, it also makes logical sense, and your teachers or the ancient texts or both confirm your lived experience. That's the information that we can feel really confident about. But the foundation of these three ways of knowing is practice. Because without practice, there isn't any lived experience. Without lived experience, we don't have the context for logical reasoning. And without logical reasoning, we don't have the tools to choose the right teacher or evaluate what the teacher is saying against our lived experience. So this is where we come back to the idea of living your yoga or an embodied practice of yoga in the broadest sense of the term. I believe that a commitment to this lived practice is essential for anyone who identifies as a yoga teacher. Because any teaching that doesn't stem from lived experience is going to be shallow and incomplete. But a teaching that's practiced, embodied, shared again and again and again in this self-reinforcing cycle becomes clearer, more succinct, and more useful over time. The more I share my thoughts and experiences of yoga with you on the podcast, the better I can apply them in my own life. The more I apply them in my life, the better I can articulate them and share them with you. After more than 20 years of study, it's difficult for me to untangle any area of my growth, my personal growth for my yoga practice. It's been a constant companion. It acts as a springboard to help me decide where to spend my energy when I'm doing well and a touchstone to return to for comfort and rejuvenation when I struggle. Yoga as a practice is both practical and esoteric. It's proactive and it's also receptive. It's complex, but its essence is pretty simple. And within these paradoxes, 
there's so much potential for a lifetime of learning and growth. Ultimately, the insights from yoga philosophy are universal truths. But I believe the world, and especially those who consider themselves students of yoga and students of yoga philosophy, owes a great debt to the collection of South Asian traditions that developed these profoundly elegant ways to describe and embody universal truths. Colonialism is an egregious atrocity that's ongoing. And one aspect of this is cultural appropriation. Though I started practicing and studying yoga innocently, I've come to understand that I have participated in and perpetuated cultural appropriation. Part of a living yoga practice involves caring for yoga, the tradition of yoga, and respecting the umbrella traditions that developed it. What that looks like for me is learning about decolonization, exposing myself to these ideas, and interrupting harm whenever possible, and supporting Indigenous teachers. There is a lot more to say here, and I'll dive deeper into this topic in a future episode in order to really do it justice. But it didn't feel right to do this episode, which is basically a love letter to yoga, without mentioning colonialism and cultural appropriation. It is my intention to treat the tradition with reverence and care. I'm aware that I won't do it perfectly, I'll mess up, and I'm committed to continuing to learn and get better at it over time. I'd like to shift the focus now to describing this living yoga practice more specifically. When I think about how I do this practice, there's two basic approaches. One is proactive and the other is reactive. Proactive living practice involves finding opportunities, looking for spaces and times to weave presence into my life whenever possible, waiting in line at the bank, stoplights, at the sink, washing dishes, on the toilet, Whenever I remember to, I shift my attention into a miniature meditation. I experience it as a softening of the boundaries of self and a sense of alertness to the sensory input of the present moment. During these mini meditations, my default state becomes more noticeable. How was I without attention? How was I without awareness? Was I already feeling relaxed and alert? Was there tension somewhere? Sometimes my neck, my skull, often my shoulders. Was I feeling anxious? Was I feeling agitated or dull? Was my sympathetic nervous system more dominant or was I in a more parasympathetic state? So I'm noticing what I brought to this moment without even being aware that I was bringing something. Often, the simple act of bringing attention to my state initiates a positive shift. The extent of the shift can be subtle or profound, but it's always positive, and that reinforces the habit. It helps me feel excited to do this practice as often as I can because I find it most useful to drop into these moments with frequency, 
several times throughout the day. So while a longer meditation practice is wonderful and useful, the magic of these is that they can happen anywhere, anytime. There's no equipment needed, no special circumstances. You don't need quiet. You don't need stillness or anything. You just bring attention to what is. So that's the proactive practice. The reactive practice is about responding to circumstances. So I'm not creating this practice. I'm calling upon it when I need it. The shortest way to describe it is just the intent to meet each moment, especially challenging moments, as skillfully as I'm able. Sometimes that looks like telling the truth when it's hard or meeting emotional pain with curiosity instead of resistance, treating myself and treating others with compassion, wishing people well when I feel envious of them, or breathing through moments of emotional triggering and stepping away instead of acting from a place of emotional reactivity. The reactive aspect of a living yoga practice is dynamic. It's unpredictable. Our circumstances are always changing, and our understanding of skillful action evolves too. I'm using the term reactive because the goal is for my instinctive reactions to become more skillful. Sometimes we hear about the difference between responding and reacting, with the implication that responding is superior. But I think that's when the meaning of the word reaction is tinged with this idea of coming from a state of fear. The way I'm using the word is just the way that we behave in response to our circumstances before we have a chance to think it through. So that could come from fear, but it could also come from habit or practice. Both formal, longer practices and the proactive daily moments of presence are where we build the skills that we want to call upon during this more unpredictable and more challenging reactive practice. So for me, you could say growth is yoga and yoga is growth. I'm always learning because the laboratory of life is always throwing new lessons my way. I'll share three insights from my own practice that have felt really useful in supporting the continued growth of this practice lately. First, living my yoga is not something that I expect myself to do perfectly. I get to meet myself where I am, do my best in that moment, learn from my mistakes, and then move on to doing the next moment the best way I know how. Getting stuck in regret about my mistakes prevents me from doing better now. It wastes energy and it's devoting attention to something I don't actually have control over anymore. Which leads me into number two, the moments when you totally fail to call upon your practice are the biggest opportunities for growth. Because that recognition that you could have done better and the feeling of regret of not having done so are powerful magnets pulling you towards doing better at the next opportunity. 
because there will be a next opportunity. So at the same time as we let go emotionally of our mistakes, we also use that to push us into more growth. The more you can meet your mistakes and your failures as teachers, the less they're going to sting and the more energy you're going to have to meet the next moment with a bit more skill. And finally, a formal practice is important and it's not enough on its own. Your practice room, meditation cushion, or yoga mat is like a laboratory to explore what you're capable of in an ideal environment. It's where you do your skills, you build your habits, you refine your sensitivity. But if you leave your practice there, its potential's wasted. I believe yoga was developed to help us live more skillfully. And we can't expect our formal practice to miraculously translate into a living expression. The lived practice needs to be nourished too, and maybe even more so than the formal practice, at least eventually over time. I think a lot of people begin with the formal practice because that's where you have to begin. But over time, I've talked to a lot of people who have shifted their focus and attention after several decades away from the formal practice, which is still there and still wonderful, but the focus becomes the living practice. I hope that sharing this exploration of how to live your yoga has been useful. I usually end these episodes with a reminder to make space for your personal practice, which we usually think of as the formal practice where we block off a chunk of time. Today, I invite you to find moments for many practices throughout your day and your week, opportunities to pause and drink in the sensory feast of the moment, to meet yourself as you are with care and loving attention and to shift your internal state, even just slightly, towards the calm alertness that helps us live more skillfully. Thank you for listening, and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.